Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we have somebody who is no stranger to the program, Dr. Art Carden, who is an associate professor of economics at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, senior research fellow with the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, research fellow with the Independent Institute, and a senior fellow with the Beacon Center of Tennessee. He's also a regular contributor to Forbes.com, and he has actually written several articles that we are going to talk to him about today. Art, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So we're, I'm just going to go out and tell everybody tonight is the night that of the election. It's, uh, we're recording this uh, in 2018 on the night of the election, on the midterm elections. Did you did you get your participation sticker? I got my participation sticker. I went down to my local precinct and I cast a ballot. And there was actually some chatter um, among the poll workers about the possibility of record turnout. And I don't know if that'd be record turnout for a mid, just a midterm election or record turnout period. But uh, just from what I can gather, it seems like uh, like the polls have been been jumping places today. Yeah. Well, I was listening to uh, the Reason podcast from like I guess they recorded it for Monday, and they said that the early voter, uh, our friend Stephanie Slade was the one kind of issuing these reports. Like the the early voting was like record high already. Trump is somehow making voting great again, right? <laughs> Apparently so. Apparently so. Well, he's I mean, he's definitely galvanized the left. That's for sure. Um, while at the same time, I guess I guess you could say he's he's certainly galvanized the right. Yeah. On one hand, there do tend to be these sort of backlashes um, after you know, the first couple of years of a new president. I remember in 2010, that was the whole Tea Party thing with this big sort of move against Obama, and we're seeing something similar doing seeing something similar right now. But um, after. The massive surprise was the 2016 election. Honestly, there's really not a whole lot in politics that would surprise me. Yeah, uh, I think the uh, a milk toast uh, result would be surprising nowadays. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so did your did your vote count toward affecting the outcome of the election? No, it did not. It did not. I cast a ballot and, of course, voted in the various um, races that I was eligible to vote in. And there were a couple of constitutional amendments on the ballot in Alabama. And my vote did not matter. Hmm. And by did not matter, what I mean is that it was not mathematically decisive. Or at least, well, the vote, or at least the, the votes haven't been counted yet. But the probability that my individual vote was decisive in any of the races I voted in is effectively zero. Yeah. I would eat my hat if one of the if one of the races in Alabama came down to literally one vote. Yeah. Well, if that happens, I'm going to have you back on because you're going to get a lot of press and that'll give our podcast a lot of press. <laughs> yeah, possibly so. Possibly so. I realize it. as I'm as I'm saying this, as I'm saying this, there's, there's you know, the, the smarter version of me is saying, do not say what you're about to say. Don't say what you're about. To, don't make this guarantee that you're about to that you're about to make. Because I remember it um, on Election Day 2016 saying to my students, 
um, let's be honest, guys, Hillary Clinton's going to be the next president. Mm. And then I lost a bunch of money on predictit.com betting against um, against the possibility of a Donald Trump presidency. So, yeah, I didn't believe it either. But yeah, my track record is not good. Yeah. Well, so I, I actually voted today, too. Yeah. And uh, I don't also have any impression that I did anything other than voted. That was it. Like I, I filled in a square and, right. and that was it. My art where I am, it was a pretty straight, pretty straight. Uh, there, there weren't very many, there weren't like constitutional amendments or anything that I, I mean, I turned it over and I was a little disappointed. I'm like, really? I don't get to read like what are, what's something I can, you know, let the people's voice be known. But, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that I got from you that the reason that that a good reason to vote would be something along the lines of social capital, which is something yeah. you know I described to a friend that it was just cost me less energy to explain to people to tell people yes I voted than to explain to them and get into arguments with them over whether or not it's worth voting. Yeah, it's and, and this is going to be different for for everybody, but depending on the circles in which you run, casting a ballot can be entree into the conversation. Um, there are a lot of people who probably won't listen to you if you didn't vote, and that's a it's a relatively cheap way to get a decent segment of the population to, to take you seriously, we'll say. And in my case, you know, my, my, where I vote, I could walk there from my house. Um, I dropped by there on my way home from work tonight. Um, very, very quick, very, very easy. So it is, it's easier, it's easier to vote than, well, it's just like you said, it's easier to vote than it is to have the same conversation over and over and over and over and over again about the cost and benefits of voting and then sort of the ethics of the non-vote. Yeah. Um, and I do believe it's perfectly ethical to not vote. Uh, I think that they're – I think Jason Brennan is right. He's got this great book called The Ethic of Voting in which he argues that there are some people that he, – he argues that if you don't have an epistemically justified true belief that what you're voting for will be conducive to the common good, you might actually have an, a moral obligation not to vote. Yeah, I, I have not read his book. It is in my Amazon like cart wish list, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I, I feel like if I were to, if I were able to argue like he does, I would probably decide not to vote so that I could strike up those conversations and, and be, you know, win, yeah. winsome and charming in convincing people that they should right. rethink their, their voting habits. But yeah, alas, I, I have not. There's also a sense in which so if you look at um, if you look at, at sort of the history of racial injustice in the United States, it, it's a very, very, very important indicator of kind of how far we've come with respect to basic political equality. Because the franchise was denied to so many people for mm -hmm. so long, and of course, it's still you know, there's still questions about well, not questions, but um, allegations of voter suppression. Uh, there's some stuff going on that looks a little bit shady, yeah, in some places. And so, so given the sort of uncomfortable history of, well, say like racial politics in the United States, there there's a part of me that feels like it, like it's it's almost a necessary show of solidarity with hmm. civil rights pioneers and decent and decent people who have who have worked so hard to yeah. get the ballot to so many people. So, so there's a little bit of virtue signaling going on too. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Well, yeah. No, no I mean, it might be a different the thing. Sticker, yeah, yeah. Well, the the sticker is completely a virtue signal. The the sticker the sticker is completely a virtue signal. In this case, there's at this point in time, kind of where we are, where we are in American history, there is, I think, a fairly strong argument to be made for voting, given how closely identified that is with full participation in American democracy, and how how relatively recent it's been that we've. We as a, as a society have seen that extended mm -hmm. to 
kind of everybody. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago that it wasn't extended officially, you know, like officially it's yeah. extended everybody, right. even yeah, though exactly. there's pockets of shady, shady action. So, so right now at the time of this recording, uh, the polls have closed because we're recording it in the evening. Yep. Uh, but we don't know really any results of anything, but your article, uh, which is, you know, how can we make the post-election world better? <laughs> Doesn't matter who wins. <laughs> That's the beauty of your article. Right. It doesn't matter who wins yeah. because there are ways to make the world better that have nothing to do with whether or not uh, we had a red wave or a blue wave. Right. <clears throat> Absolutely. Or, or you know, or a purple wave, which I doubt will yeah. happen. I, I, I'm not sure that I would. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's going to be, I don't know, it's, it's going to be whatever, whatever it is, whatever kind of wave it is, it's going to do an enormous amount of damage. I mean, we, we, we just know that. Red wave is going yep. to do an enormous amount of damage. Purple wave would do probably a good bit of damage. Blue wave would do a lot of damage. It's just kind of a, it, it would just kind of be a matter of whose house gets flooded. Yeah. So, so how do we make the world a better place afterward, after this election? Well, first, I, I think, I think calm down a little bit would be, would be appropriate. Every, every election, of course, there's a lot of hyperventilating about how this is the most important election of our lifetimes, the most important election in American history or what have you. And there's, of course, a good bit of chatter on all sides about how the other team, whether that other team is the red team or the blue team, is an existential threat to everything that we hold dear. And I, I just think that's 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 kind of absurd. I really doubt that the values of, of liberal capitalist Western style democracy are going to die if, again, you know, if, if the wrong team ends up in power. Though in long run, though, I think that there are a lot of things other than voting that we can do or a lot of things that we can that would help to make the world a better place. And an example of this I, I mentioned in the article is occupying K Street. Mm -hmm. So K Street's where all the lobbying firms are in Washington, D.C. And while it would be hard to do that if you can't get to D.C. easily, there are a lot of alternatives because there's a lot of stuff that governments do or the government bodies do that are that are not going to be decided at the ballot box. But licensing commissions, for example, have hearings and city councils have hearings and all sorts of all sorts of different organizations at all different levels of government have hearings and opportunities for people to make to make public comment. Um, one way to participate would be, for example, to go to the local cosmetology board, say, uh, whenever they have their 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 next hearing or their next meeting, and actually ask, okay, what gives you the right to tell people they can't cut hair? You know, or what tells people what gives what gives you the right to tell people that they have to have this specific license and pass these specific exams in order to apply their trade for money. I was getting a haircut, I think a couple of years ago, and I rushed in really quick and I you know, looked like Grizzly Adams because I hadn't shaved and just hair was a mess. And I asked the I asked the guy who cuts my hair if he could give me a shave as well. Cause again, like I said, I looked horrific. Um, or I looked more horrific than usual. <laughs> and he said, he said, no, no, he couldn't because he didn't have a barbering license. He had a cosmetology license, which would allow him to cut my hair, but he needed a totally different license in order to give me a shave. And this is, this is, it's sort of like a microcosm of yeah. first, one of the things that helps to cause structural unemployment. Yeah. And second, when we look at reasons why the real economic growth rate isn't, isn't higher, that struck me as a pretty good example. Yeah. Okay, I'm pretty sure 90% of the people listening to this episode probably realize how crazy this is. I mean, we're even even the not quite libertarian listeners of this show would be like, really, hair, right? Like, come on. But let yeah. me let me just play the 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 consumer safety 
devil's advocate because obviously that's where everybody goes. What well, is for your safety, yep. Art, because he's got a razor to your skin. I mean, I, it's funny thing is, like when I think of Floris, I'm like, what on earth could go wrong? But I could actually imagine right. something going wrong where he cuts you by accident, even even non-trivially. True. And he's got no license and he's in big trouble. So it's in his best interest, of course, to, you know, not not do that. But right. why why isn't it a good thing to keep citizens away from people who haven't been approved by somebody to use a razor against their skin? Well, shoot, I use a razor probably every other day at least. And I don't have license to use it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a fairly clumsy guy too, so I end up cutting my face up a little bit. But I don't have a license to shave my own face. Um, it's not at all clear that someone would have to have a license, would, should require a license in order to shave for money. Because if, if we look at the risk, or if we think about the risk associated with going and getting, going and getting a shave, right. that can be reflected first in insurance costs for you know, the guy who cuts my hair or the, guy who, or the barber who, who, uh, who gives out shaves. Because if he's not good at what he does, presumably this exposes him to additional liability and he's going to be more difficult to insure. And it's also going to be reflected in lower prices. So shaves would be cheaper, perhaps, or shaves would almost certainly be cheaper if they could be marketed without a license and the price would reflect the relative degree of risk in much the same way that there's a difference between uh, like a 15 or $20 haircut you get at Supercuts or Great Clips or somewhere like that and a $100 haircut that you get at a fancy, fancy salon. You would have – High prices for people who are really good at it and low prices for people where – or for situations which there might actually be a little bit of additional risk. Yeah. Moreover, the relevant alternative may not be going to a better barber or going to a better, more capable, more highly qualified user of the razor. It may be shaving at home, and it could very well be that you're worse at shaving yourself than even the sort of careless and clumsy guy with the razor who wouldn't have a license. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if there could be a case, I'm, I'm sort of playing this out a little bit sarcastically, I wonder if there a case could be made that because the government makes everybody within the vicinity of Art Carden getting a, a shave have a license, and therefore, and Art is dangerous to himself with a razor, therefore the government is somehow oppressing Art Carden because he has no options, like, you know, like they they don't let <laughs> like they're preventing you from having like they're giving a monopoly, right? Like a sanctioned monopoly on people, but you can't afford it or something. I don't know. I'm just thinking like there's got to be some like backdoor argument against this by their own logic. <laughs> well, possibly so. Yeah. My, my silly ramblings aside, uh, I'm glad you brought up insurance because I think a lot of times people in the libertarian movement who eschew these like these regulations and these licenses and stuff like that and mm -hmm. the alternative isn't something else but it's more like well we just shouldn't have those licenses whatsoever but you brought up insurance how right. would and, and explain for us how how insurance would fill that gap of uh, customer customer uh, trust yeah so so howie bacher who's an economist at towson university has and I, i'm kind of trying to follow his lead in this he stopped referring to regulation as a purely government phenomenon. He's referring to government regulation and market regulation. And 
markets are excellent regulators of quality and reputation and things like that. And indeed, reputation is the very mechanism by which quality generally gets monitored. I'll give you an example, or I'll just give you an example of ways in which insurance markets can handle some of this stuff. If you're if you're careless with a razor, then you're probably going to be difficult to insure, or you're probably have to pay more for insurance. If you pass certain exams and get certain certifications or things like that, then your insurance is probably going to be cheaper. Indeed, we can have via you know, websites like Yelp and things of that nature, information about who is and who isn't certified by, I don't know, whatever private certifying agency or organization happens to pop up. And then insurance companies themselves might advertise, hey, we're insuring this person, we're insuring that person, we mm. will insure this person, we won't insure that person. You can advertise, I'm insured by whoever. And presumably they'll provide you with uh, – they can provide you with you being the, the barber or the cosmetologist can provide you with coverage in the event that you – know, in the event that you make a mistake. But by and large, insurance is a cost of doing business, and the riskier you are, the more you're going to have to pay for it. So that's going to provide people with a pretty powerful incentive to reduce the degree to which they are exposing people to risks. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean in that kind of world – your bar, not your barber, your the the guy that cut your hair who was not a barber, uh, could could say to you, well, in that world, well, I don't do these kinds of haircuts because, uh, or I don't do a shave. I just I stick with haircuts because I'm really good at it, and right. I I. I tried the shaving thing, but then I had to get a lot of training and I just felt like I'm just going to focus on where I am yeah. rather than rather than the situation where it was it was like, well, I'm just not allowed. Right. <laughs> it's like people yeah. can kind of get funneled into to where they're to where they're good. I, I've I'm really glad you brought up the insurance thing. That That's great. So um, so we've we've gone a little bit of a, a detour here on Occupy K Street because you said that we should uh, could not should. <laughs> you said that one way to affect yeah. change is to kind of show up to these licensing board meetings and do some things like that. Um, what, what, what else could we do? Well, so, um, I would say and here, here I'm thinking very, very long run. So, well, so short run, making your voice heard at licensing board meetings and city council meetings and things like that, like the sort of things that, that participants in, in democratic civil society do in the long run, I would say like really, really, really listen to people who are not like you. Or really listen to people who may not share your theology or may not share your politics or may not share your worldview or what have you. Um, yeah, just, just to use we'll use the voting thing as an example. I mean, like I'm, I'm a white guy. Voting has never been an issue. Like the thought that I would be denied the franchise has, has never been yeah. never been a problem for people who look like me. But – for a big chunk of the American population, it has been and it is. And so 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 there are there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people out there for whom voting is almost a sacramental act, in part because of what it represents, not just the probability that your ballot will be decisive, but that that sort of your humanity and your dignity and your membership in this broader, you know, this broader thing that we call um, American society has been recognized and, and has value. So uh, this is the sort of thing where, where, like, for example, I might have had a blind spot or did have a blind spot, and it's it's taken a bit of deliberate seeking out of information that I may not necessarily find immediately ideologically or methodologically congenial to really come to. This is this is a probably not a not a not a terribly. Uh, moving example, but it's it's somewhere where I've, I've had to grapple with something I just hadn't really thought about that much before. 
One of the major problems, of course, with the 2018 social media sphere is our tendency to silo ourselves. I mean, of course, that's nothing new, but we can do that now at practically the speed of light. And it's very, very easy, as I mentioned earlier, to see the other team, whichever team that happens to be, as an existential threat to all that you hold dear. It's very easy, too, to dismiss the views of people who aren't part of your team because they're clearly crazy or it's clearly just the way they were brought up or clearly they're evil or clearly whatever. Um, It would be useful to – it would be useful if we thought it possible that people who don't think like us or people who would disagree with us about perhaps some fundamental things might actually be on to something or they might have pretty good reasons for thinking some of the things they think and believing some of the things they believe. Yeah. Yeah, um, I recently got done reading uh, Jonathan Haidt's *The Coddling of the American uh, Coddling of the American Mind*, and ah. one of the three great untruths was uh, that there the world is comprised of good people and bad people. Right, <laughs> and like the people, and I just, oh man, it's just so dangerous. We get all tribal, and man, it's it's just crazy how how that kind of thing. You know, you, you say in your article that this turns us into what Jason Brennan calls a hooligan. Right. Um, and when when we don't when we don't oh man when we don't listen to each other you know this is why I keep I don't hide people or unfriend people on Facebook right. uh, or take a break they call it I think now um, so yeah I mean I think the idea of listening to people with whom you disagree you know this is this is something is that's a reason why I haven't unfriended or hidden people uh, on Facebook yeah. because you know what? I, I mean, some people I have, cause I'm like, this is just, this, this is really crazy and they're just being super right. tribal, et cetera. But uh, I have, I have friends on the left who have, you know, they post articles and I'm like, wow, that really made me think uh, it's a little ideologically left or, or a little bit weird, but you know, at least the people on the left are also anti-war um, at right. least allegedly. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think if you're a libertarian, you have to realize that you can't dismiss people who are crazy, who have ideas that are crazy, because before you were libertarian, you knew our ideas were crazy. So <laughs> you just kind of have the self-awareness. Right. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, it could very well be the ideas themselves are not necessarily crazy. I mean, they may be wrong, but there might be there might be reasons why people believe some of the things that they believe. And then as, as libertarians, I mean, what's the advocates for self-government used to do this Operation Politically Homeless thing. I don't know if they still do that. But um, if, if if there's any group of people in the world who should have sympathy for orphaned ideas, it should be us. Yes, uh, that's very well put. Yes. Right. Well, again, like I was looking at my ballot tonight and thinking, OK, so I'm I'm generally with the Republicans on things like taxes and school choice and whatnot. But I'm also to the left of the Democrats, probably on things like immigration. Mm-hmm. So who do I vote for? Yeah. And then moreover, um, I like to think that I've I've come to my views through careful, calm reflection. OK, some of them maybe, some of them maybe not. But um, I, I would love to get to the point where I could pass an ideological Turing test for virtually uh, – so virtually any set of views with which I disagree. And I'm not really sure that I'm there yet. Really? Yeah, um, that that's interesting that you that you would say that. I would I would think that uh, I would think that you would because you've you've represented other people's views fairly well. Well, I try, I try. Um, uh, but again, there's there's always there's always room to get better. So um, I don't know if you guys have talked about the ideological Turing test before, but this is something that uh, Brian Kaplan at EconLog proposed about seven or eight years ago, and his 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 argument his argument is is that you should you have passed the ideological Turing test if you can. If you can give an argument in a way that's indistinguishable from, say, like the actual advocates of that argument. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah. And again, like I said, I'd, I'd like to think I'm probably decent at that. I'm, I'm so I'm probably on some issues you're very good at and other issues you just haven't right. really honed, honed your skill in, in being right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the other things in your article on what to do after election day and non-voting related is, is travel. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised to see that on the list. Could you elaborate why travel makes the world a better place? Why should I just travel more? Or is it, or is it just, I'm going to be a happier person? <laughs> yeah. Part of it's you're going to be a happier person and traveling is fun. Um, but also just being around. So, so I'm, I'm very much obviously a, a big fan of Friedrich Hayek and the ideas he puts forth about the importance of local knowledge. And I think it's, it's useful to, it's useful to put ourselves in situations where we don't have the local knowledge. We're kind of like fish out of water in a sense. Um, because in part that, that helps us, that helps us to appreciate the fact that people who are people who who live their day to day lives outside of settings or contexts like ours, they know a lot more about what's going on on the ground than we do. Mm. Um, an example of this: so over the summer we took a long family road trip and we drove from uh, we drove from Birmingham to we visited a couple of national parks in Wyoming and we went to Las Vegas and drove back through Houston or to, to visit my sister in Houston and it was the first time. I ever driven across the plains and um like i knew it was out there like i knew how i knew it was big but i I never really experienced just how big and empty it is and at various points during the trip i was thinking what what in the world would make me sitting in my office in birmingham alabama think that i know the appropriate on-the-ground institutions for rural south dakota Mm. Or like the appropriate way to solve these sets of problems in this particular part of the country where, one, population density is a lot lower, two, altitude is a lot higher, and three, just everything – well, the topography is just very, very different. Yeah. Well, and it shapes the culture and the people who live there too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, and I think think travel travel is a a relatively easy way to pursue diversity. It's a relatively easy way to to put yourself in situations where you're probably around – around people that know things you probably don't and put yourself a little bit outside of your comfort zone. Mm. I mean, a lot of this kind of boils down to the, the sort of cliched idea that get outside your comfort zone a little bit. And then you, you know, then you, you grow as a person and you come to appreciate and understand other people more and better. There are a lot of different ways that you can get outside your comfort zone just a little bit or stretch your, your proverbial bubble and, Ideally, come to appreciate the diversity of experience that the world has and furthermore, the diversity or the way that that diversity influences the kinds of views that people have and that people have developed. Uh, I think it, it helps it helps us become much more empathetic than we would otherwise be. Hey, folks, if you love listening to our podcast, you may want to check out our monthly webinars. Every month, we have a different speaker take a deeper dive into topics relevant to libertarian Christians. If you've missed some of our webinars so far, well, don't worry. You can still download them. Visit our website at libertarianchristians.com slash events. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what's interesting about that, that particular article that you wrote is that it has to do with getting to know people who are not like you, whether you know it or not. Like people that you know disagree with you, people who you don't know at all, and they may or may not disagree with you, but there are situations that, that they have that you don't. You can learn from that. Yeah. And even if you don't, mm-hmm. I mean, 
speaking of traveling, even if you don't actually interact with a whole lot of people in, you know, quote unquote, I don't mean foreign as in like foreign to you. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're from Birmingham, you've never been to Denver or whatever, you know, Denver is a different experience and and it gives you a new perspective. Right. So, yeah, that's really that's really good. Well, and and there are baby steps people could take. I mean, obviously, this is something I do very, very, very imperfectly. Like I look at my own network or my own sort of suite of experiences. And again, there there are changes I want to make. Um, but you know, it's, it's, you know, every day is a new day and, and you can start small. Um, for example, like, I wonder, I wonder how many people, well, it's, let's, let's, let's be stereotypical here for a second. Cause I, I kind of do this a bit in the article, like how many sort of left wing avocado toast chomping progressives have ever eaten at Cracker Barrel non-ironically. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Or similar, like, you know, how, like how many if I if I go to like if I go to if I go to the nearest Whole Foods market, I'm not going to see a whole lot of gun racks in the parking lot. So how many right. like how many sort of rock ribbed conservatives, you know, NRA members are shopping at Whole Foods regularly? Right. Probably not that many. Yeah. Um, I, I would I would love to I would love to see us move more in the direction of empathy by, you know, just 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 trying just trying to trying to find trying to find ways to put ourselves in other people's shoes. As hacking as that may sound. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, other another thing that can make make the world a better place is learning a little bit of economics and and maybe more than learning it, applying it, right? So that that's the time, that's yeah. my segue to your next article uh, is which is how economics helps us mm-hmm. make better policy. Now we've we've actually had you on to talk about tariffs, so we're gonna kind of leave that one to the side right. because you elaborate forever on that with us uh, in an earlier episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but you yep. know, minimum wages. Uh, is one of those things where it right. it almost to me it almost feels like a politician has to do these kinds of advocacy for minimum wages. Otherwise, they their virtue signal card just goes bleep and it's like out. Right. So why why is asking for higher minimum wages not a good way to virtue signal? Because it's really not virtuous, is it? Well, yeah, I would I would argue that it is almost certainly not virtuous. Um, now there's a there's a a growing literature suggesting that the convention, what we would call the conventional wisdom in economics, might be a little bit lacking. But I'm not entirely persuaded by it, given the, uh, given first the the sort of compelling logic of the competitive model, and um, second, just the the array of the different types of evidence suggesting that there are in fact disemployment effects from minimum wage. And even if the even if the disemployment effects are small, we can still be making the least of these among us worse off by saying you're not allowed to work for less than 15 bucks an hour or less than $12 an hour or less than $11 an hour or whatever. We create winners and losers, specifically winners who might have the higher wages, losers who now have now can't work as much as they would like. And then in the long run, probably on net, Everybody loses because if you have an artificial oversupply of labor, which you're going to get when you hold a when you hold the 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 wage above that, which will clear the market, people are going to try to find all sorts of different and relatively inefficient ways to compete with one another. By, for example, trying to find new ways to well, one way one way to to do this would be by accepting non-wage parts of a labor contract hmm. that are a little bit less attractive. So maybe you have to get higher wages, but your benefits aren't as good. Or you have to get higher wages and benefits, but you don't get as much paid time off. Or maybe you get all this stuff, but maybe your schedule is not as flexible as it would otherwise be. And when we think about when we think about people participating in the labor market, there are a lot of folks for whom that's a really, really important trade-off. And one way to compete in a market where wages are artificially high is by saying, okay, I'm willing to give up the schedule flexibility that I, that I would, um, that I would otherwise like to have. 
So the quality attributes of the jobs that people actually get are going to deteriorate in much the same way that the quality of rent-controlled apartments hmm. will deteriorate. I'd also say, too, with respect to minimum wages, that they're, they're not particularly well-targeted as anti-poverty policies. Because there's a, there's a paper that was published in the journal Political Economy several years ago making what I think is an important and compelling point about who tends to buy goods and services that are made by minimum wage workers. And they tend to be relatively low-wage workers. So to the extent that there is a redistribution, it's from one group of relatively poor people paying higher prices to another group of relatively poor people who are receiving slightly higher wages. Wow. That's I hadn't I hadn't heard I hadn't really thought about it in that way or heard that mm-hmm. heard that analysis. What is the what is the gist of the 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 new wave of uh, challenge to this traditional view? Yeah, so the traditional view is the competitive model of the labor market, supply and demand. If you took uh, principles of economics class, there are alternative models of how the labor market works. One being the what what, would be, what we call the monopsony model, where there's there's a lot of market power, say, on the uh, the firm side of the labor market where actually increasing minimum wages could lead to increases in employment for a variety of different reasons. Um, There's also a good bit of empirical evidence suggesting that the disemployment effects of minimum wages may not be that big. They're there, but they may not be huge. Um, Now, they're bigger in the long run than they are in the short run, but there are a lot of economists who – or a lot of economists who support higher minimum wages on the argument that there are disemployment effects, but they're very small. And again, I'm not I'm not entirely sure that I'm persuaded by that. Yeah. So, well, while we're speaking of prices, then, uh, you know, price gouging, we've we've had two, I think, this summer, this hurricane season, two pretty, uh, Mm -hmm. pretty decent storms or hurricanes. And man, I can't even remember. I don't live on the coast, so it's it's hard for me to remember. How sad is that? Uh, (laughs) But we we always talk about price gouging. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what is interesting is I don't know. Maybe this is just like. I don't know what what fallacy this is, but like I'm pretty sure I didn't notice more people talking about price gouging this time around. Like I actually feel like on Facebook, that's my exposure to the kind of arguments that people make like this, mm-hmm. that the arguments about price gouging and the outrage was less than it has been in the past. And maybe it hasn't, but I'm I'm actually yeah. kind of slightly optimistic that people are realizing that because we have things like Uber, because we have uh, better ways of transportation, um, we we just have a lot more people really willing to go down and help. That price gouging is not as not as uh, demonized as it once was. Uh, I'm not so sure. I'd have to I'd have to look at survey data or something like that yeah. to really really make a determination. It could be. It could be that we're just desensitized to it. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, a friend of mine from Texas, it posted something on Facebook about how one of the candidates was, you know, had this ad about how he prosecuted price gougers after Hurricane Harvey and things like that. So what may look like a general increase in economic literacy is almost certainly an illusion. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, there's always somebody willing to make a buck off price gougers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So, um, but yeah. Yeah, go ahead and go through the the economics of what why 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 should we be against price gouging? Then I have a few follow up questions, some pushback on that. Yeah, so price gouging is first of all, it's a terrible phrase. It's just because prices are going up, prices are going up, and in particularly in a post disaster context, um, a lot of economists have have said that prices are kind of like signal flares, and sharply rising prices are signal flares going up, saying, "Hey, we need you to bring these now." 
these now scarce resources, these now very, very scarce, very, very valuable resources to areas where they're needed, things like gas and bottled water and generators and whatnot. And in the absence of the price signal, in the absence of the higher price, people don't get the information they need saying, hey, bring all of this stuff to where it's most needed. Now, we might be able to – we can think in, in like very, very broad terms. We think, okay, so after a hurricane, of course, people are going to need more gas and they're going to need generators and they're going to need plywood and things like that. But how much? Okay, we don't know necessarily. And even sitting in, in Birmingham, which is, is far enough inland that we get some pretty nasty rain after hurricanes, but we're not – you know, we're, we're very, very well protected from it. I can know vaguely that – People in the path of the hurricane need all of this stuff, but again, I don't know how much of it they need. I don't know what sizes. I don't know what shapes. I don't know yeah. um, whether whether I should be transporting gallon jugs of water or twenty ounce bottles of water right. or or what have you. So we can we can sort of think very vaguely about what people might need, but we don't get the precise information that would be transmitted by a price. So. People pay in different ways, whether there's price gouging laws or not. Right. So if they don't pay by spending 16 times the amount for a, mm-hmm. a 24 case of water, right? Uh, 24 bottle case of water, what are they paying with, with? They're paying with time and time is money. So this is the cruel irony of it. Um, so Mike Munger has a lot of, you know, it, I, I would imagine there's probably a lot of overlap between the LCI podcast listenership and Econ Talk listenership. So Munger's done a couple of dozen Econ Talk episodes. But he has he has a couple of cool posts where he talks about how price gouging doesn't change what you pay, but it changes how you pay. Mm-hmm. It changes the fact that it, so instead of paying, so let's let's just say a 24 24 pack of water, instead of paying the say $150 that that would be after a disaster, but instead of paying with cash, you're paying say $25 cash, but then with $125 of your time standing in line for hours and hours and hours and hours to get your hands on this artificially scarce bottled water. Right. So you consume, well, consume's the wrong word. You bear a cost of $150, but you don't create a benefit for anyone because you're just standing in line, literally wasting your time. Okay. So what about the people who can afford to spend time but can't afford to spend the money on the on the higher priced good because I, I would I would be some sometimes I would be willing to wait in line if something were at a cost I mean people stand in line you know three days ahead of chick-fil-a and in, in you know when mm-hmm. when chick-fil-a opened so obviously people are willing to right. spend uh, spend time in exchange for saving money so what price gouging laws doesn't seem to hurt those people right or does it well yeah so so so, and again, here I'm, I'm going to rely on Munker. You can either have so one of the problems with a price gouging law, or the problem with any price ceiling, is it creates shortages. So, the relevant price, the, the relevant price, if there's literally no bottled water, is infinity. So, you can have, and he, again, like I'm, I'm basically like paraphrasing Mike here. You can either have water available at a very high price, or you can have no water available at any price. And my my sense is that if you are, even if you're very very poor. A little bit of water at a very high price is almost certainly better than no water at any price. Furthermore, um, I think one of the things – and I don't know that anybody's really studied this in, in, in great detail. I think it would be a fantastic paper topic or dissertation topic for a listener. But would be the, the labor market in a post-disaster context because the world is filled, of course, with able-bodied people. And there's going to be a lot of stuff that needs to be done. So somebody who – so if we let the market work and we just let prices rise, I can imagine a scenario in which 
instead of waiting in line for three hours to get bottled water, someone spends three hours clearing debris for 15 bucks an hour and then spends some of that money on uh, – well, not artificially, excuse me – newly more expensive bottled water. So in the case where we have a price gouging law, they consume their time and they don't produce any benefit. In the second case where we don't have a price gouging law, they're able to get water, but they're able to get water by clearing debris. So ultimately, we're better off. So, wow, we, we've had this like mm-hmm. really long conversation, Art, and uh, we didn't get to almost half of the things that I had <laughs> listed down here for us to talk about. So, of course, I think we'll just have to I think we'll just have to have uh, you, you might you might end up being the Mike Munger of the LCI podcast uh, <laughs> <laughs> <That was laughs> where where there's, you know, over the course of 12 years, it'll be a couple dozen uh, appearances. Who knows? Okay. Uh, so we have plenty to talk about in a future episode. Um, so I I Thanks for thanks for joining us. It's it's always good to have a conversation with you. You you think clearly. You always have really uh, relevant examples for the kind of principles of economics that you uh, that you talk about. Uh, you must be a teacher, so uh, we're glad to <laughs> we're glad to have you on. Okay, well I appreciate that. I'm glad to be on and really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Music